The moment has arrived. I'm Tom Dickinson, and you are listening to Season 1, Episode 8 of The Moment. Each week on The Moment, a different guest drops by to discuss an individual moment in an episode of Doctor Who that had a strong impact on them, or that they have a strong reaction to, or that they just have a lot to say about. This week, we return to the classic series for a moment in Peter Davison's first season as the Fifth Doctor. Eric Stadnick of Doctor Who The Writer's Room joins me to talk about a scene from Part 4 of 1982's Kinda. Now, if you haven't seen Kinda, who boy, this one's kind of hard to explain. It's a story full of introspection and Buddhist symbolism and weird snake demons and arts and crafts projects. The Doctor and his companions Adric, Nissa, and Tegan arrive on the planet Divaloka, a jungle paradise planet where conflict is brewing between the indigenous people, the Kinda, and an expedition assessing the planet for potential colonization. Tensions are being stoked by a malevolent force called the Mara, which, depending on who you ask, is either a manifestation of the darkness within the human heart, or a rather charmingly ludicrous giant snake puppet. As part three of Kinda comes to a close, the Doctor and the scientist Todd encounter Panna, a wise old woman of the Kinda, and her apprentice, the young woman Karuna. They all have a strange prophetic vision of destruction, and when the Doctor and Todd recover, the old woman Panna seems to have died. But the young woman Karuna now claims that she is Panna, and that's where Eric's moment happens. It's a small moment, but it's it's the moment when Well, unlikely but ridiculous. She is Panna, the wise woman, and where is Karuna? Answer me that. The doctor and Todd and Karuna who is now also Panna, sort of stopped to talk about what happened to Panna. Ah, well, it's a good scientific question. Where are you? I am her. The idea being that... So, when Panna died, her knowledge and experience were passed over to you. And Todd, being the scientist, is very sort of... How? And Karuna says... It is our way. And the doctor, in this moment, does not question that fact. Was it real or not? Well, did you see it? Yes, Well, so did I. He is not sort of with Todd. He's with... Karuna on this side of the sort of exchange, accepting that this is how the Kinda are, and it is not necessarily a rational thing even to do to try to pick it apart too much, not because there isn't an answer, but because the answer is, this is our way. That is the best answer. And I kind of love that in that moment, we see the doctor as the sort of wide-eyed traveler who has not yet seen everything in the universe and loves seeing things he hasn't seen before. And he and Karuna exchanged this smile. It's, it's, it's a very small moment, the whole thing. But it's really lovely, and it really shows that side of the Doctor, the, the side of the Doctor who travels the universe not necessarily to always fight evil, but to see things he hasn't seen before and to accept them on their own terms. And, and do you think that's a characteristic that's particular to Davison's Doctor or to the Doctor as a, as a whole? I think, it's, I think it's part of the Doctor as a whole. I think it's one of the best parts of the Davison Doctor that, that gets brought up occasionally here and there. But I was thinking today about other times where sort of accepting the society or the people as they are is what separates the Doctor from his companions. In this case, Todd is the pseudo-companion because the other companions are off doing things. But I was thinking of The Empty Child when Rose seems kind of shocked or scandalized. Relax, he's a 51st century guy. He's just a bit more flexible when it comes to dancing. By Captain Jack's How flexible? sexual proclivities. Oh, by his time, you lot spread out across half the galaxy. Meaning? So many species, so little time. And the doctor's what? like, it's the, he's from the 51st century. 
it's his way. Don't try to, you know, look too closely for an answer. Just accept it. This is who they are. I think it's something that recurs when the writers remember to put it in. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because even though it's something that the Doctor has never seen before, it's also not terribly different from something that just happened to him very recently, mm-hmm. where he was Tom Baker and then all of a sudden he was Peter Davison. Yeah, I think he, as a Time Lord, sees it as it is and is able to understand that to someone looking at him, the idea that he was just Tom Baker and before that had been John Pertwee, to be like, like, well, that can't be. How is that possible? And he, he could say just back, well, it is our way. And also, like, the, the Watcher. The explanation in Logopolis for the Watcher is just, he was the Doctor the whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was the Doctor all the time. And the precise mechanics of, well, what does that even mean? Or yes. how or why? And that also has, like, a tinge of mysticism to it. Yeah, no, I think well, the Watcher is a really interesting comparison to this, because you're right, the Watcher is not even remotely explained except as some sort of future projection of the Doctor or something. He actually merges with the dying Tom Baker to become Davison. It's an actual, like, merging. It's not just some sort of alternate vision. And that's coming from Bidmead, who is not exactly a loosey-goosey, non-scientific kind of guy. Right. But I think many great Doctor Who writers have taken as sort of, you know, not officially, but their mind. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. If what you did was travel through all of time and space, even for you, Doctor, and everything you encountered fit your understanding and established patterns, how dull would that be? You should be finding things that to you are just baffling. But that's good. Okay, I know everything. And what distinguishes a good traveler from a bad one is how they react to that bafflement. Do you accept it and smile and sort of learn as much as you can the way Davison does, or do you fight against it and try to make it fit your patterns the way Todd is doing in this scene? And and that's what I think really makes this moment stand out to me, is it's such a good example of the Doctor as traveler, as someone who is seeing this thing he hasn't seen before, but he knows enough to know that there are things I don't know. There are things I don't understand. Do you find it at all uh, frustrating that we don't get a quote-unquote proper explanation for how or why that kind of thing can happen? I don't. I think they they could provide one in a story like Kinda. And I think there, there are definitely stories where the hand waviness gets a bit extreme, perhaps. But Kinda is about, in some ways, the struggle of science and rationality against the mystical and the unconscious. That's the theme, or one of the themes, of this very complicated little story. I think if you tried to do something like this in a story like Robot... Those people are evil. They're lying to you. They've altered your programming to make you act all wrong. (laughs) It would be... I am confused. Really bizarre and ridiculous. understand. But in something like Kinda, and, and you know, and again in Snake Dance, when... Christopher Bailey comes back and makes more about Tamara. Dare you bear witness to what Tamara shows? Dare you gaze upon the unspeakable? Dare you come face to face with the finally unfaceable? There's plenty of stuff in that that's not really explained. It sort of thematically resonates. It makes sense in some way if some understanding of good and evil and and quiet and meditation but it's not like oh well it triggered this thing and that caused this thing it's not it's not a step-by-step explanation it's more of a sort of okay well that kind of would make sense Hmm. and here you can kind of gather well there's a young girl and she sort of helps the old woman and and sort of the old woman in waiting then it's sort of this unbroken chain when the old woman dies the young girl becomes the old woman and and it's sort of the collective race memory of an entire people in one person that's kind of a brilliant little idea and you understand it even if you don't understand how it works 
I, mean, I think that's all you need. The doctor's attitude towards the Kenda, towards these people, he's already kind of getting to know them before he meets them. Like, he sees the chimes, and he kind of understands of that... Of course, to build this, to achieve the delicate resonances involved, would require a high level of technical skill. Mm-hmm. That there are much more advanced people than the colonizers have come to understand them as. This yeah. is before he, he meets them. But you see, he, he comes to them from this entirely different angle. So by the time he meets them, he, he already kind of has a higher opinion of them than some of the other characters in the story do. Yeah, he has he has all that knowledge and he has the sort of openness, which is far and away the best quality of the Davison Doctor, that openness about who he is and about his interactions with the world. He sees in these things that someone else might sort of, and they do sort of discount or throw away as the work of primitives or whatnot. And he's like, no, these are highly advanced people. They may choose to live a lifestyle that you think is inferior because they don't have houses but the climate is constant within a five degree range and the trees fruit in sequence all you don't year need round. a house on david Lopez. which means the kinder have no need of shelter and no fears for food supply it is the garden right. of eden like it's a stupid idea to build a house in the garden of eden <laughs> he doesn't even really push back much you know pan is very fond of calling an idiot is he an idiot he never says i'm not an idiot well i suppose i must be I have been called one. Keep to... silent, idiot. Just sort of exa- okay, you're going to call me idiot. And one of the ways we know that Panna has become idiot Karuna is don't you know anything? Because Karuna then calls him idiot. Of course, I'm not dead. How do you feel that this story does in terms of handling themes of colonialism compared to other examples in Doctor Who? It's tricky because on one hand, you have plenty of stories like Colony in Space that are very explicitly about colonialism. But they usually spend a lot of their time with the colonizers or the colonists, Mm -hmm. depending on how you look at it. This is, I think, one of the few that sort of portrays both sides relatively fairly. Open the box. The men in the dome. I don't think that will be very wise. Become crazy, awful people. Are you mad? We don't know what's in it. Because of the box. Open it and find out. It's going to be very dangerous. Open it or I'll have you shot. Whereas I can think in other Doctor Who stories... Sort of the evil colonists are evil because they're evil. They're there on a sort of just exploratory mission. They're there to find out whether or not this planet is even worth colonizing. Yeah. It's not, you know, Galactic Mining Corp like it would have been in the 70s or something. And so Bailey does a relatively even-handed job of showing these people as people. Hindle's, you know, famous scene about you can't mend people. You can't mend people, can you? Which, you know, Simon Ralph goes... You can't mend people! Way over the top for it. It's pitch perfect in my opinion, but it's it's really big. We spend a lot of time with them, not because it's sort of filler this time with the people in the dome. It's to really make us understand who they are and the fact that they are not just snidely whiplash coming in to destroy the planet, but they happen to be the people who were sent to this planet to find out what this planet is like, and that meant they encountered the Kinda. And the Kinda, because they are not a species or a race or a tribe, whatever you want to call them, who are easily understandable by scientific minds, I think have probably have a tendency to drive people a bit mad. Hmm. You know, I think Todd struggles, but she's much better than some of the other characters. She at least is trying to. The leader, Sanders, he doesn't seem at all interested in learning anything about them. I mean, he's he's interested in learning about the place, but as for the people themselves, he just dismisses them out of hand as primitive savages. Yeah, and and he does. And then he gets, you know, sort of, regressed by the box. Where's Hindle? We've been having fun. Have you? Oh, good. There's nothing quite like it, is there? 
you like this? Which is a really what? interesting, you know, to the time of childhood when you're more open to things, when your mind is more able to experience wonder and sort of delight at sort of things that are new. And then at the end, we see him and Hindle, and they're sort of both been... Thank you. ...quote-unquote cured. Thank you, sir. They're not back to where they were. They're better than where they were before. Thank you, sir. You can mend people. Exactly. That's the thing. Is like, Hindle is convinced that you can't mend people, and you can mend people. And something about this experience at Diva Loka does mend people. It's right. just... He was just driven out of his mind. Just what he needed. You can't always mend people the way you think you can mend people. Sometimes the way you need to mend people is by changing your outlook on life or having a, a different experience that really forces you to rethink things. Yeah, I think an important sort of step along the path towards that is, as the doctor kind of demonstrates in this moment you picked, is to kind of meet other people and address them on their own terms. Yeah, um, I'm reminded very much of an essay by uh, Michel de Montaigne, the famous French essayist from the 1500s. I'm going somewhere with this. Okay. If you'll allow me, Your Honor. He has an essay called On the Savages. You know, the 1500s is when sort of European explorers were making contact with a lot of the sort of especially American tribes and races and peoples and the common European opinion was that they were simply savages and needed to be civilized and Christianized because that's what you did. And he has a very lengthy essay about this. I mean, he essentially talks about the various tribes and things, and he, he doesn't know necessarily a lot, and certainly not as much as we know now. But there's this overall sort of general vibe of, they're people, aren't they? Like, they're, they're people. What more do you need to know? Like, why, why is that not enough? They're people. But it's famous for its last line. He says, alas, they wear no breeches. I, you know, they don't wear clothes like us. So therefore, they must be. Ugh. They must be inferior savages because they don't conform to what we think society and civilization is. So therefore, even though they have language and laws and society, ugh, that's well, they're just doing it wrong. And that's very much the sort of colonial attitude right up until the turn of the 20th century, at least, if not actually later. And you're right, you know, the doctor comes in and meets the kinda halfway, maybe even arguably more than halfway. Given how intuitive his doctoring is in this episode, he doesn't gadget his way out of this one. Mm -hmm. It's more about sort of intuitively understanding the threat. As soon as you start the cycle of violence, it cannot be stopped. Like, the only way to stop the cycle of violence is to stop it before it begins. And he sort of intuitively understands that. He never sort of, like, draws a chart <laughs> that says, we, the, you know, they attack Dome, Dome people send more enforcements, it becomes bad, this happens, this happens, and Damara laughs. He instead sort of gets it in a gut level, but only because he doesn't do what, as you say, the colonists did, which is look and say, oh, well, they're just primitives. He can quickly see the evidence, but also quickly feel the intelligence of these people. And he never says, prove it to me, <laughs> you know? Right. He never says, prove to me that this crazy thing you're talking about, the Mara, is whatever. And he even comes with a solution at the end about the mirrors is completely an intuitive solution. Mirrors? No Mara can bear the sight of its own reflection. It must recoil from itself. Understandably, don't you think, given its nature? Yes. That's another thing that kind of harkens back to like an almost like alchemical mm -hmm. way of dealing with problems. Yeah, no, it comes not from a sort of understanding of science, but from an understanding of the nature of evil, which, you know, sounds super goofy or <laughs> profound or deep or whatever, but it, it really does come from this understanding that the Mara, being what it is, cannot bear to look at itself. Mm. Evil cannot bear to look at itself because it knows. It, it cannot survive being forced to confront what it is. And the doctor just, like I said, he intuits that. 
Hmm. He sort of, you know, from things that people have said about the Mara, which he knows very little about, really, he knows this idea that whatever it is, it cannot bear to look at itself. And so therefore, what we need is Mirror. Do you like the Mara as a villain? It's what, villain is a weird term for the Mara, isn't it? It's, it's certainly an antagonist. Yeah, an antagonist, or it's certainly in, this, in Snake Dance, it feels much more of an antagonist because it's, it directly possesses Tegan and makes her do things. It's more of purely symbolic here in Kinda. I actually do quite like it. I think it's really interesting in Doctor Who to look occasionally not at people doing bad things, but at the things inside of us that make us do bad things. And what the Mara is, you know, it says it lives in the dark places of the inside. It's all of us. And, and, and Snake Dance follows up on this heavily. That sort of when all of the people on Manusa, when they all sort of focus their energy, all the bits of the evil inside of them coalesce to form the Mara. Which is such a lovely and disturbing idea. I quite like it. Yeah, I do. I can see why someone who wants something more concrete, something they can more fully understand, something that's less abstract, <laughs> why the Mara and the Mara stories sort of just become like, eh, it's just stupid. It's not for them. And th- that's fine. You know, I, I would never know Doctor Who is for everyone. <laughs> you know? With this story, I can easily envision a version of it that throws the lever in the other direction and goes even more abstract. Mm-hmm. You don't even necessarily need Amara to have a version of this story, a-, a conflict in this situation between these people in the dome and these, you know, telepathic indigenous folks on the on the planet. Uh, the Amara serves to intensify a conflict that already exists. No, I think that's right. And But I think what the Amara does, it, it provides a way for the resolution to come about obviously which is nice yeah there's something to defeat but it also it also focuses and and sort of concentrates this idea of sort of the darkness inside of us and that if it is given rain once it takes over one person it can easily sort of lead to a this spiral and downward destruction and that it is very difficult work. Mm-hmm. It's the very difficult work of generations not to allow that to happen. So to, to sort of isolate all of those forces in this thing called the Mara sort of allows us to, I think, think about all these things in a different way than if it were just human action. Yeah, People like talking about evil people. They do not like talking about evil. They do not like talking about this thing that exists inside all of us that you can give whatever name you want, lustful desire or sin or evil, that thing that makes us do bad. We instead like talking about bad people as monsters and predators and they're evil and they're broken and like, but all of us do terrible things, hurt other people, hurt ourselves. And sort of externalizing it as the Mara allows us to sort of, like the Mara itself, look at it and Mm -hmm. see what it is and think about how that connects back to ourselves. And I think that's super powerful. And that's something that this story can do that if you remove the Mara and just made it, as you said, much more sort of about the two sides, that'd be a very good story, I think, still. But it'd be a very different story and be very easy, again, to talk about, well, those people are bad. Mm -hmm. But it's not about me. Whereas with this story, with the idea of the Mara... It's no, it lives in the dark spaces. It lives everywhere there is darkness in a mind. That's where the Mara lives. Yeah. Sorry, that's very cynical. <laughs> Not cynical, but it's sort of like this story brings out the sort of philosophical side of me. It's one of the Doctor Who stories that, that is more conducive to that sort of analysis. Mm-hmm. Certainly this one and Snake Dance. I mean, I can think of a few other stories like Warrior's Gate might be another one. Oh, yeah. Stories that have like a almost a kind of avant-garde theatrical mm-hmm. way of presenting themselves. And that's definitely something that I would love to see a lot more of in Doctor Who. I think it's not something that we've gotten all that much in the new series. It's interesting. It, it crops up here and there in unexpected places. The one story I thought of, oddly enough, that I think ties in with Kinda in a very roundabout 
cutaway is Amy's choice. Hmm. One of the first things we learn about the Toby Jones character. No idea how you can be here, but there's only one person in the universe who hates me as much as you do. Yeah. And it turns out, of course, this is just the dark side of the Doctor's mind. It's like, that's the Mara. That's essentially what it is. It's the Doctor being forced to confront himself and hating it. And I think, again, this idea, I, I just finished the novelization of Day of the Doctor by Moffat. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, isn't it? And something that when I was reading it that hadn't occurred to me during the 50 times I've watched the story is that the war doctor for the doctor it's is like, the... It's like a promise you make. ...external personification. He's the one who broke the promise. ...of the worst thing the doctor has ever done. It's the same idea, again, as Kinda. It's this pulling it out, which means you have to look at it. If it's sort of just back behind you in your memory, you don't have to see it. But if it's standing in front of you, the way John Hurt stands in front of the other two doctors. The way you both look at me, what is And they that? stare at him and they hate him. I'm trying to think of a better word than dread. Dread is the word that he uses. And it's like, it's that idea again. It's this pulling the sort of badness and the darkness outside of yourself and looking at it. I think that's very valuable to do sometimes. And the Day of the Doctor is kind of about reconciling and reintegrating that action. Pretending you weren't the Doctor when you were the Doctor more than anybody else. Back into the Doctor's own time. You were the Doctor on the day it wasn't possible to get it right. No longer running from this thing. And in fact, we're going to fix it because it was a bad thing to do. I do think it actually is, like, at least thematically connected, because I think one of the things the war doctor thinks he has lost is the ability to see anything with joy mm -hmm. and with wonder and discovery. Nothing is fun. He hasn't been able to go and have fun adventures. He's just been fighting. In, in that sense, he hasn't been able to sort of do the open-eyed acceptance that Davison does in his story. Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought that up because it reminded me of, in the novelization of The Day of the Doctor, there's an interesting thread about the way the Doctor thinks of himself. Yes. You know, as having multiple parts, there's a part of himself that isn't the Doctor and a part of himself that is the doctor mm -hmm. the novel sometimes slips between first and third person mm -hmm. where the narrator says something like the doctor said this and then we'll refer to the same character by saying and then i did this yes which is really interesting because it reminds me a little bit of the distinction between the mara and tegan i am a mara or the distinction between the mara and um aris i think is his name i yeah. am aris I have voice! Yes, so I hear. But it is the voice of Amara in the body of Aris. It's not really so simple as a possession. It kind of is that person and it kind of is this other thing. Yeah. But also the day of the Doctor novelization kind of gives you the opportunity to imagine, you know, a good thing that lives inside of us. <laughs> that the Doctor is really just a Time Lord that has a thing called the Doctor that lives inside of him and usually takes control and sometimes doesn't. But uh, yeah, it allows for a more optimistic reading. It does. It's actually interesting the number of tweaks Moffat does to change what we saw on screen to actually drive that point home even harder that the doctor is not a person and I'm going to accidentally quote enlightenment another great Davidson story you're missing the point enlightenment was not the diamond enlightenment was the choice the doctor is not a person the doctor is a choice yeah that message is so good and so resonant that he is not the sum of some great set of qualities he is the sum of the decisions he has made and she has made mm -hmm. and that she will continue to make them and that sometimes she will fall short, but she will continue to try to be the doctor. And that's what makes her the doctor. And I thought that was such a wonderfully lovely message. Seriously, if you haven't read that novelization, go and do it. It's amazing. It's so good. Yeah, this, this is a little um, beside the point of, of Kindle, <laughs> but I'm definitely leaving it in because I have a campaign to, to get people to read that. Yeah.
to kind of return one of the themes in the story that I think is exemplified by this moment is the way people can sort of connect with one another across difference. Mm -hmm. But related to that, there's a particular idiom that is invented by this story, which is the not we. Yes. (laughs) And there will certainly be listeners to this that don't know this, but by many Doctor Who fans, not we is a kind of shorthand for people who are not hardcore Doctor Who fans, people who either don't watch Doctor Who or watch it only casually. How do you feel about that term and the way it's used here in the story and the way it's been adopted by the fandom at large? Part of me thinks it's it's just a harmless bit of, you know, fun. But the other part of me, and this is sort of a mini side quest I've been on for the past good number of years of my life, everybody's a we now. Maybe not about Doctor Who in particular, but this idea that we still have this nerds versus, you know, jocks, nerds versus normies, whatever. I mean, it's nonsense. The most popular show in the world is, is a fantasy series with dragons, yeah. zombie TV shows, and movies about boy wizards, and massive films about hobbits. Like, how much more money does Spider-Man have to make before people accept that sort of that line is, is gone? And yeah, there will always be people who don't like Doctor Who, fine, but it's not like 30 years ago when you would say you were into something that was sort of nerdy, sci-fi, fantasy, whatever, geeky, and people would look at you with disdain. Now they're more likely to be like, oh, I've never seen it, I heard it's good. And that's going to be the extent of your interaction with them on that topic. You know, at my old job back in the States, I got known to be the Doctor Who guy. Seven different people I worked with came up to me and said, where should I start? Hmm. These were total notweaves in every sense. And some of them liked it and some of them didn't. And that's fine. This tendency we still have to draw that we not we line is not helpful for either side. Because I think it makes us more insular. And I think in this day and age, at least, there's no really good reason except for sort of like collective memory of high school beatings or something to keep us from just being more open. Like I said, not everyone will go for it, but to call them not we is sort of just... Mm, I don't know. It's a bit too exclusionary for my taste. Yeah, I think, um, like you said before, usually it's done in harmless fun. It's rarely done as a sort of conscious, deliberate attempt to ostracize people who don't belong in our nerd fold. Mm -hmm. But the Doctor Who world is becoming a lot more inclusive on screen and behind the camera. Yeah. And I'm hearing a lot of excitement about the show from people who have never been excited about it before. Mm-hmm. There's kind of an opportunity now to throw the doors open and and welcome welcome everyone as they rush in. And you know, one one thing that the show is doing is they're not using the word companion as much anymore. Yeah. They're now just referring to the people who accompany the doctor on her adventures as her friends. Which should have been made 35 years ago, as far as I'm concerned. Like, I don't know why we stuck with this term companion. It's so... <sighs> yeah, it's strange. And I, th- I think I think we'll come to a point where companion seems as strange to us then as assistant does now, mm. when assistant was just what the doctor's allies were, were called for a while. As long as we're as we're taking, you know, long-held pieces of verbiage and, and kind of casting them aside, I would be happy to kind of see not we go the way of the dinosaur or go the way of the companion <laughs> i'm actually happy to have dinosaurs back <laughs> want dinosaurs and doctor who i'm fine with that yeah yeah no i'm 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 with you on that i think um we're, we're all we we're all we know 
And that is it for the moment this week. Many thanks to Eric, who you can follow on Twitter at SJC Austinite. That's SJC, and then Austin with an E, like Jane Austen, and then IT, I-T-E. You can hear more of Eric saying smart things about themes and whatnot in Doctor Who if you listen to Doctor Who The Writer's Room, a podcast where he and Kyle Anderson have spent the last few years doing in-depth discussions about Doctor Who writers. That show is wrapping up soon because they've talked about all those writers, but those discussions are evergreen and highly recommended. Also, if you're wondering who is this Eric person and what knows he of being a good traveler who is open to new experiences, Eric blogs about his life as an American expat in the Czech Republic over at ericsprogblog.blogspot.com. That's Prague like the city, not Prague like progressive rock. As for this show, you know where to find us. You find us at themomentpod.com, and you find us on Twitter at themomentpod. And you find us wherever you find podcasts, including now Spotify, if you listen to podcasts on Spotify. Knock yourself out. I'm Tom Nickinson, and I'll be back in a moment.